Welcome to Bite Size Dental Marketing. Lauren, thanks for jumping on with me today. I'm so happy to have you. Today we have Lauren Wheeler. Lauren runs Practice Transitions Group, and they represent dentists on the sell side of the transaction. And I love that because I find so many people are out there trying to represent both or they're representing the buy and the sell. But like, I like that you guys specialize on the sell side. But I would love to know how you got started. Where have you been all my life? Because it is the wild west out there. We have so many offices right now that are in some form of desiring to sell. Oftentimes we get engaged because they're looking at an exit strategy in you know, three or five years. Tell me a little bit about, about the practice transition group. Sure. And by the way, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have this opportunity. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Well, we're a Texas based company, although we do work nationally. Um, our founder originated in the real estate side. So he was helping, um, Dennis find space doing this. Um, competition analysis, demographic studies, site selection, and lease negotiation. He had helped uh, a, a dentist in particular grow to about 10 locations. And that uh, gentleman knew the excitement uh, and the interest from private equity groups in the dental space and figured that he had a valuable asset, but mm. frankly couldn't find uh, a, a representative to help him sell. So Dentists are kind of in an interesting space in the market where, unfortunately, they're too small for the general investment banking boutique firms, even who might start at eight million in EBITDA. Uh, so they won't speak to somebody unless they have at least eight million in EBITDA. But these dental practices are more sophisticated or are, are too sophisticated for your average business broker. So my partner Thomas uh, said he would roll up his sleeves and help this gentleman sell his practice. Uh, and by the way, Thomas and, and his uh, practice real estate group co-founder had owned a practice themselves and gone through the exercise of selling that. And so he had a little bit of experience, uh, but he wound up having a highly successful transition for this particular gentleman. And that was really the genesis of our firm. Um, fast forward to today, we've um, over the past three years, we've sold over 90 practices. Wow. We uh, help Dennis sell both into the private equity backed buyers, such as DSOs. And we also help Dennis sell to individual dentists or what we call a doc to doc transaction. So mm -hmm. we're well experienced with managing both types of processes. Now across those 90, what would you say the breakdown is of private equity to doc to doc over That's the last three years? Question. You know, I'm going to say it might well be, half and half, although mm. I'm finding that the more uh, transactions we're doing lately seem to be DSO phase. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what might separate a practice from being sold into the private equity backed groups or to a DSO versus being a doc to doc transaction is really two criteria. The first is the size of the practice. So generally, if a practice is a million in revenue, I've talked to a DSO yesterday who will buy them if they're in a metro area at 900,000 in revenue. Um, that's a key criteria, but really one of the more important criteria is the doctor's commitment to stay. So mm. the private equity groups are looking at the selling doctor as a 
as a business partner. So they really want that doctor to make some type of a commitment, whether it's three years or five years. Mm. And we do see a direct correlation between value and the amount of commitment that that doctor is going to make. So Interesting. For, yeah, exactly. So for example, um, we have had the, we have been able to sell um, a practice into DSO where the, the, Doc, Dennis has come to us and said, look, I, I can only make a 12 to 18 month commitment. Um, so we've been able to successfully drive a transition process with that type of a commitment from the doctor. But what happens in that scenario is there may not be as many bidders on the practice. So for example, if a doctor is willing to say that he'll stay for five more years, he enjoys practicing, but he's just looking for um someone to take a little bit of the administrative burden off of his shoulders and may want to take some chips off the table, so to speak, that type of dentist is going to have seven to eight to 10 groups that are going to be looking at that practice. Mm. Whereas the dentists who have waited until they are very close to retiring, you know, they may only have three or four groups that are seriously considering that practice. I'm sure that there's a lot of ego wrapped up in it, but I've seen it go both ways to where dentists give up some of that administrative work and just become a dentist the last few years and they've enjoyed life. I've also seen them get really frustrated. What, what do you think is the Delta between the two? I think that's a great question. And one of the key pieces of the transition that we focus on when we have a dentist that's selling into a DSO is the culture fit. Mm. So oftentimes, you know, as long as the dentist has reasonable expectations around value, that value is going to be there. There's so much interest in uh, acquiring dental practices. I think there's 250 DSOs nationally now that the valuation piece, let's just assume that's there. We spend just as much time talking to our dentists about what's important to them from a culture standpoint um, we ask questions like, what is your, what, what's your ideal work-life balance on day one after the transition happens? You know, what, what is your big why outside of the financial metrics? Because if we can really understand what's important to a dentist from a culture standpoint, we're going to find the right fit for them. Mm. And that's a key part of our job. So not only are we, you know, packaging up the practice to where it looks its most attractive. Uh, we are reaching out to any set of eyes that may have interest in the practice. We're also looking at these groups for, from a number of different angles. Number one is the culture fit. And, you know, there have been plenty of negative reputations built by some of these DSOs. Um, but I would say if you've heard about one DSO, you've heard about one DSO. There is a huge range of cultures within these different DSOs. And unfortunately, we've gotten to know a lot of them. We've sold practices into a lot of them. And we've talked to our docs. We stay in touch with them after they sell. And we uh, learn about their experience firsthand. And we use mm -hmm. that information to make sure that we're advising our sellers uh, to go to the right group. You said something that made me giggle a little bit inside and that asked their chief marketing officer, I'm about 30% therapist. And uh, I'm sure when you said something about talking to them about their whys and things, I'm, I'm sure there's some element of your job that is therapy. We are helping these doctors, these dentists <laughs> with what is probably the most significant financial transition of their lives. 100%. The yeah. 
the magnitude of that is absolutely not lost on us. You know, we're, we're small business owners ourselves. We're entrepreneurs too. Um, and we recognize that these dentists, not only have they been providing excellent care of their patients by day, but they've been wearing the entrepreneurial burden on their shoulders by night. And we want to make sure that we help them reap every dollar of reward from their hard work in these transactions. So yes, absolutely. We get to know them. We get to know what's important to them. I mean, that's, that's what drives a successful process for us is really getting to know our sellers and delivering on their objectives, not just financially, but personally as well. You, you mentioned valuation and I want to circle back on that. I mean, I have to assume. And, and and this is just me making a, a broad assumption that there's probably very few just lowball offers or fire sales of practice. I mean, given the state of the market, I, I would imagine that do most valuations come back fairly consistent today? And walk me through the process, how long it takes, and and sort of the some of the common missteps that you see. Well, you mentioned uh, that, or you ask if valuations are consistent across the board. Um, there's one area that I think it's important for dentists to be aware of, and that is uh, unsolicited offers or what we refer to as unsolicited offers. And that's where the DSOs, they are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on business development teams. And so oftentimes their goal is to go directly to a dentist who is not represented uh, by someone mm. like me. And I can give you handfuls of examples where we've had dentists come to us. Uh, they've had an unsolicited offer from a group. Um, and then they've fortunately decided to list with us. And what happens when they list with us is our goal is to drive a competitive process. So they may be receiving one valuation from one group, but as soon as that group recognizes that they've gone to market and there's seven other groups that may want to buy that dentist, then the valuation becomes a true market offer pretty quickly. As someone who owns a business, I can only imagine how much of their identity is wrapped up and how, how hard it must be to get a low offer. How are they getting into the hands of a dentist? There's all manner of different ways. Yes, mm. there's mailers. And, you know, if you put yourself in the chair of a dentist, let's say somebody sends an offer that says, you know, we may buy your practice for a million dollars. You know, that could on the face seem exciting. Mm -hmm. But let's say that this dentist um, chooses to work with us. And there's a lot of factors that, that drive evaluation. The key for a dentist who is selling into a private equity group or, or a DSO uh, is their EBITDA, which is really just a proxy for cash flow. Mm -hmm. And you have to be with an experienced group that knows how to calculate adjusted EBITDA. And so that's one of the things that we know what to do and is a very key part of our process. We've got a CPA on staff. We have a financial analyst. I myself have an MBA and a lengthy career in finance. And so we know how to find the right cash flow or EBITDA number. Uh, we're always accurate with our numbers, but but we don't miss an ad back. And what I mean by that is if there are any costs that wouldn't transfer to a new owner that are being run through the current profit and loss statement, we're going to 
dig through three years worth of financials and we're going to find those costs and we're going to add them back to get an adjusted or normalized EBITDA. Hmm. So those add backs are like, I run my car through the company or my healthcare is a hundred percent paid through the company or my internet's through the company. Are are you talking about things like that? Like, is that, would that be an, those be add backs? Exactly. Yes. Any non-recurring or discretionary costs just like that. You've had to see some interesting stories back there on addbacks. Well, I will say we know where they hide. Nice. Nice. <laughs> we know where they hide. Well, that's a key distinction is a dentist wants to make sure that they have someone doing that analysis for them. Because if it's the buyer that's doing it, you have to imagine they're not incentivized mm-hmm. to find every ad back. And you know, you may think that a $10,000 expense isn't that big of a deal. But when we're talking about a seven times multiple, that's $70,000 from evaluation. What are you seeing as the time frame that typically in today's market? So we typically sell a practice within six to eight months. Now there's a handful of variables within that range. Um, number one is who's the buyer? Is it a, is it a DSO or is it an individual doctor? Uh, number two is where is it located? So if it's practice here in the Metroplex and it's selling to an individual doctor, you have to imagine there's probably more docs looking for a practice here in Dallas than, you know, maybe in Kalispell, Montana. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's something that, uh, that we take into consideration and we always uh, manage our dentist expectations um, around how long we think their, their practice is going to take to sell, but it's generally a six to eight month process. And that is from when they have engaged us to closing. Mm, And we manage every step of the process from gathering the uh, information needed to market the practice and put together what we call a confidential investment memorandum to blasting that out out to the market and making sure that any potential buyer has the opportunity to see the practice uh, and, and not... I mean, by see the practice, I mean, look at the the paperwork. We um, we do some kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? We make sure to vet buyers before they're ever even talking to the dentist. We know mm. that the dentist's highest and best use during a transition is actually to stay right there in the practice and continue practicing and producing and keeping the numbers at least steady, if not increasing. And so that's a key part of the value that we bring in is selling a practice can be a huge distraction, but we really take that burden off of the dentist's shoulders. Mm. Now, you mentioned a confidentiality agreement. How how do you, what are the best practices for talking to your staff? What are the best practices for, you know, not, not being, solicited by, uh, I'm going to say unqualified buyers. Like how, how do you balance getting the name out there, but at the same time, protecting the dentist from, you know, the, the deluge of, of activity that would come their way. We prioritize confidentiality. We understand the disruption that can be created if a staff member finds out on their own about a sale. And so that is something that we are very careful with. And, you know, through our near hundred transactions, we've managed to keep sales confidential. Um, so with the marketing materials that we prepare, any 
interested buyer will have to sign a non-disclosure agreement before they're able to view any of that information. We've also developed some kind of tips and tricks internally for making sure that employees don't find out. As you can imagine, there is a significant amount of information that needs to be gathered for us to, number one, put together the confidential investment memorandum, number two, field due diligence questions from interested buyers before they put in a letter of intent, and number three, manage the, what we call the secondary due diligence process, which that's after a letter of intent has been signed, and then we're moving towards actual closing. So there is a hefty volume of information that needs to be collected from the practice, and we have some internal tips and tricks that we've developed mm. to make sure that folks don't find out from that. Angle. Yeah. You mentioned due diligence and you just flashed me back to the few companies that I've been part of at the, I've sold. I, I, I mean, I know the tax returns. I, I know that, you know, you need access. What kind of due diligence are these, the, the buyers doing? Uh, you know, you mentioned the tax returns historical financials, employee contracts, uh, associate licenses, insurance contracts, practice management reports, uh, leases for the underlying um, location, uh, equipment lists. I mean, I could go on and on about the information mm. that needs to be gathered. And we have really developed a streamlined process. We're, we're innovative and technology focused. And so we've managed uh, to streamline the process to where our dentists, they may spend two to four hours on a Sunday afternoon uploading certain pieces of information. And we really take it from there. Yeah, that's got to be helpful. I can't, I, I have trouble getting just my normal tax documents and I can't imagine getting my life's work. After you have the practice ready to go to market, how often are you talking to the dentist? Are you packaging up the offers and bringing to them? Are you, how does the process work once the practice is listed? It's a great question. Um, so as I mentioned with our due diligence process, we're generally um, gathering all of the information up front that we would need to field 95% of the initial due diligence questions. Um, and we're, we're helping uh, buyers get to the point where they want to put in a letter of intent. Once they put in a letter of intent, and let's just say we're in the um, DSO buyer space, we're going to summarize all of those letters of intent. We're going to go to the dentist and we're going to simplify the information for them from the perspective of the headline valuation, from the perspective of a culture fit, with this particular group. So we may be able to say, you've got seven LOIs. We think that these three are really a good fit for you, but maybe these four, you know, don't really align with some of the key culture uh, aspects that you're looking for. And then we're also going to evaluate these DSOs in terms of what is the value of that retained portion of equity going to be? When did these groups last have a recapitalization event? What's the likelihood that you're going to have a liquidity event within a certain amount of years? There are a number of other facets in related to that, but we're doing all of that analysis and we're kind of demystifying some of mm. the overwhelming amount of information that you, that a dentist would need to gather on their own in order to make an educated decision. 
on the flip side, if it's a doc to doc transaction, a lot of that is helping the banks. So most of the time when an individual doctor or an individual dentist is acquiring a practice, uh, they're being financed by a bank. And so we're helping those bankers um, kind of check all their boxes in order to get credit approval. How much different are the banks in actually approval? Can some banks magically get you approved? You know, it's funny because we'll have some who will decline a dentist and then another will approve it. And then the next week, bank A has declined it and bank B approved it. So generally speaking, they all have fairly similar ways of looking at things, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it can be that one nuance that makes the difference between, you know, a debt service coverage covenant meeting the requirements or not. I I cannot imagine selling my, you know, agency without a team to support me. Just just the complexity of how DSOs make money and the chances of the likelihood of liquidity and the how far we are away from, from events. You know, that's a key part of the overall valuation. So for a dentist that's looking to sell into private equity or sell to a DSO, their valuation component is going to have two pieces. There's going to be the cash up front, and then there's going to be the portion of retained equity. And, you know, we dial in before we take a practice to market in terms of what a dentist may need uh, from a cash perspective. But we also want to help them understand the value of that retained equity. So if you think about an individual practice that is generally valued at five to seven times their EBITDA, well, these platforms, they're generally valued at 12 to 14 times their EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So day one after the sale, that portion of equity that the seller has retained or rolled into the DSO, it can be worth double what it was the day before. And so that's a really exciting component of the valuation. And we want to make sure that our sellers absolutely understand how it's calculated, when it becomes cash. You know, we want to walk through all of those pieces of the puzzle and help them really understand it and feel comfortable about the decision they're making. I think it's a high bar to be a great dentist, to to understand the complexities of finance and legal structures and evaluate a deal. But so I, I think it's amazing. I think you guys have carved out a wonderful niche. Well, thank you. You know, that's a key part of the process for me is being a trusted advocate for my sellers and being that person that no, there's no such thing as a dumb question, you know, being the person who they can call and say, what is EBITDA or, you know, what, what does the second bite of the apple really mean? That's one of the most rewarding parts to me is, is to help these folks who are so well-educated and so wonderful at what they do you know, help demystify some of this language that can be intimidating that really isn't. You just need somebody that's going to sit down with you and make sure you understand it. And that's one of the fun parts. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much again for your time. And this has been amazing. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you were able to jump on the show. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. And that was your bite of dental marketing.